Thou believest that there is one God, thou dost well. The devils also believe and tremble. True Grace Distinguished from the Experience of Devils by Jonathan Edwards James 2.19 Observe in these words, number one, something that some depended on as an evidence of their good estate and acceptance as the objects of God's favor, a speculative faith, or belief of the doctrines of religion. The great doctrine of the existence of one only God is particularly mentioned, probably because this was a doctrine wherein, especially, there was a visible and noted distinction between professing Christians and the heathens, amongst whom the Christians in those days were dispersed. And therefore, this was what many trusted in, is what recommended them to, or at least was an evidence of, their interest in, the great spiritual and eternal privileges in which real Christians were distinguished from the rest of the world. Number two. How much is allowed concerning this faith, that it is a good attainment, thou dost well. It was good as it was necessary. This doctrine was one of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity, and in some respects, above all others, fundamental. It was necessary to be believed in order to salvation. To be without the belief of this doctrine, especially in those that had such an advantage to know as they had to whom the apostle wrote, would be a great sin, and what would vastly aggravate their damnation. This belief was also good as it had a good tendency in many respects. Number three. What is implicitly denied concerning it, that it is any evidence of a person's being in a state of salvation. The whole context shows this to be the design of the apostle in the words. And it is particularly manifest by the conclusion of the verse, which is, for the thing observable in the words, the argument by which the apostle proves that this is no sign of a state of grace, that it is found in the devils. They believe that there is one God, and that he is a holy, sin-hating God, and that he is a God of truth, and will fulfill his threatenings, by which he has denounced future judgments, and a great increase of misery on them, and that he is an almighty God, and able to execute his threatened vengeance upon them. Therefore, the doctrine I infer from the words to make the subject of my present discourse is this. Nothing in the mind of man that is of the same nature with what the devils experience, or are the subjects of, is any sure sign of saving grace. If there be anything that the devils have or find in themselves which is an evidence of the saving grace of the Spirit of God, then the Apostle's argument is not good, which is plainly this, that which is in the devils or which they do is no certain evidence of grace. But the devils believe that there is one God. Therefore, thy believing that there is one God is no sure evidence that thou art gracious. So that the whole foundation of the apostle's argument lies in that proposition. That which is in the devils is no certain sign of grace. 
Nevertheless, I shall mention two or three further reasons or arguments of the truth of this doctrine. Section 1 The devils have no degree of holiness, and therefore those things which are nothing beyond what they are the subjects of cannot be holy experiences. The devil once was holy, but when he fell he lost all his holiness and became perfectly wicked. He is the greatest sinner, and in some sense the father of all sin. John 8.44 You're of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there was no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. First John 3, verse 8, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. He is often spoken of by way of eminence as the wicked one. So Matthew thirteen nineteen. Then cometh the wicked one, and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. Verse 38, The tares are the children of the wicked one. 1 John 2, verse 13, I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. Chapter 3, verse 12, Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one. Chapter 5.18 Whosoever is born of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. So the devils are called evil spirits, unclean spirits, powers of darkness, rulers of the darkness of this world, and wickedness itself. Ephesians 6, verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Therefore, surely, those things which the minds of devils are the subjects of can have nothing of the nature of true holiness in them. The knowledge and understanding which they have of the things of God and religion cannot be of the nature of divine and holy light, nor any knowledge that is merely of the same kind. No impressions made on their hearts can be of a spiritual nature. That kind of sense which they have of divine things, however great, cannot be a holy sense. Such affections as move their hearts, however powerful, cannot be holy affections. If there be no holiness in them as they are in the devil, there can be no holiness in them as they are in man, unless something be added to them beyond what is in the devil. And if anything be added to them, then they are not the same things, but are something beyond what devils are the subjects of, which is contrary to the supposition. For the proposition which I am upon is, that those things which are of the same nature, and nothing beyond what devils are the subjects of, cannot be holy experiences. It is not the subject that makes the affection, or experience, or quality holy, but it is the quality that makes the subject holy. And if those qualities and experiences which the devils are the subjects of have nothing of the nature of holiness in them, then they can be no certain signs that persons which have them are holy or gracious. There is no certain sign of true grace but those things which are spiritual and gracious. It is God's image that is his seal and mark, the stamp by which those that are his are known. 
But that which has nothing of the nature of holiness has nothing of this image. That which is a sure sign of grace must either be something which has the nature and essence of grace, or flows from or some way belongs to its essence. And therefore, that which is sometimes found holy without the essence of holiness or grace can be no essential, sure, or distinguishing mark of grace. Section 2. The devils are not only absolutely without all true holiness, but they are not so much as the subjects of any common grace. If any should imagine that some things may be signs of grace, which are not grace itself, or which have nothing of the nature and essence of grace and holiness in them, yet certainly they will allow that the qualifications which are sure evidences of grace must be things that are near akin to grace, or having some remarkable affinity with it. But the devils are not only wholly destitute of any true holiness, but they are at the greatest distance from it, and have nothing in them in any wise akin to it. There are many in this world who are wholly destitute of saving grace, who yet have common grace. They have no true holiness, but nevertheless have something of that which is called moral virtue, and are the subjects of some degree of the common influences of the Spirit of God. It is so with those in general that live under the light of the gospel, and are not given up to judicial blindness and hardness. Yea, those that are thus given up, yet have some degree of restraining grace while they live in this world, without which the earth could not bear them, and they would in no measure be tolerable members of human society. But when any are damned or cast into hell, as the devils are, God wholly withdraws his restraining grace and all merciful influences of his spirit whatsoever. They have neither saving grace nor common grace, neither the grace of the Spirit nor any of the common gifts of the Spirit, neither true holiness nor moral virtue of any kind. Hence arises that vast increase of the exercise of wickedness in the hearts of men when they are damned. And herein is the chief difference between the damned in hell and unregenerate and graceless men in this world. Not that wicked men in this world have any more holiness or true virtue than the damned, or have wicked men, when they leave this world, any principles of wickedness infused into them. But when men are cast into hell, God perfectly takes away his spirit from them, as to all its merciful common influences, and entirely withdraws from them all restraints of his spirit and good providence. Section 3 it is unreasonable to suppose that a person's being in any respect as the devil is should be a certain sign that he is very unlike and opposite to him, and hereafter shall not have his part with him. True saints are extremely unlike and contrary to the devil, both relatively and really. They are so relatively. The devil is the grand rebel, the chief enemy of God and Christ, the object of God's greatest wrath, a condemned malefactor, utterly rejected and cast off by him, forever shut out of his presence, the prisoner of his justice, an everlasting inhabitant of the infernal world. 
The saints, on the contrary, are the citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, members of the family of the glorious King of heaven, the children of God, the brethren and spouse of his dear Son, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, kings and priests unto God. And they are extremely different, really. The devil, on account of his hateful nature and those accursed dispositions which reign in him, is called Satan, the adversary, Abaddon and Apollyon, the great destroyer, the wolf, the roaring lion, the great dragon, and the old serpent. The saints are represented as God's holy ones, his anointed ones, the excellent of the earth, the meek of the earth, lambs and doves, Christ's little children, having the image of God, pure in heart, God's jewels, lilies in Christ's garden, plants of paradise, stars of heaven, temples of the living God. The saints, so far as they are saints, are as diverse from the devil as heaven is from hell, and much more contrary than light is to darkness, and the eternal state that they are appointed to is answerably diverse and contrary. Now, it is not reasonable to suppose that being in any respect as Satan is, or being the subject of any of the same properties, qualifications, affections, or actions that are in him, is any certain evidence that persons are thus exceeding different from him, and in circumstances so diverse, and appointed to an eternal state so extremely contrary in all respects. Wicked men are in scripture called the children of the devil. Now is it reasonable to suppose that men's being in any respect as the devil is can be a certain sign that they are not his children, but the children of the infinitely holy and blessed God? We are informed that wicked men shall hereafter have their part with devils, shall be sentenced to the same everlasting fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels. Now can a man's being like the devil in any respect be a sure token that he shall not have his part with him, but with glorious angels and with Jesus Christ, dwelling with him where he is, that he may behold and partake of his glory? application. The first use may lie in several inferences for our instruction. Section 1. From what has been said, it may be inferred by parity of reason that nothing that damn men do or ever will experience can be any sure sign of grace. Damn men are like the devils and are conformed to them in nature and state. They have nothing better in them than the devils, have no higher principles in their hearts, experience nothing and do nothing of a more excellent kind, as they are the children and servants of the devil, and as such shall dwell with him, and be partakers with him of the same misery. As Christ says concerning the saints in their future state, Matthew 22, verse 30, that they shall be as the angels of God in heaven. So it may be said concerning ungodly men in their future state that they shall be as the fallen wicked angels in hell.
Each of the aforementioned reasons given to show the truth of the doctrine with respect to devils holds good with respect to damned men. Damned men have no degree of holiness, and therefore those things which are nothing beyond what they have cannot be holy experiences. Damn men are not only absolutely destitute of all true holiness, but they have not so much as any common grace. And lastly, it is unreasonable to suppose that a person's being in any respect as the damned in hell are should be a certain sign that they are very unlike and opposite to them, and hereafter shall not have their portion with them. Section 2 we may hence infer that no degree of speculative knowledge of things of religion is any certain sign of saving grace. The devil before his fall was among those bright and glorious angels of heaven, which are represented as morning stars and flames of fire that excel in strength and wisdom. And though he be now become sinful, yet his sin has not abolished the faculties of the angelic nature, as when man fell he did not lose the faculties of the human nature. Sin destroys spiritual principles, but not the natural faculties. It is true, sin, when in full dominion, entirely prevents the exercise of the natural faculties and holy and spiritual understanding, and leaves many impediments in the way of their proper exercise in other respects. It leaves the natural faculty of reason under great disadvantages by many and strong prejudices, and in fallen men the faculties of the soul are doubtless greatly impeded in their exercise. Through that great weakness and disorder of the corporal organ to which it is strictly united, and which is a consequence of sin. But there seems to be nothing in the nature of sin or moral corruption that has any tendency to destroy the natural capacity or even to diminish it, properly speaking. If sin were of such a nature as necessarily to have that tendency in effect, then it might be expected that wicked men in a future state were there given up entirely to the unrestrained exercise of their corruptions and lusts, and sin is in all respects brought to its greatest perfection in them, would have the capacity of their souls greatly diminished. This we have no reason to suppose, but rather on the contrary, that their capacities are greatly enlarged, and that their actual knowledge is vastly increased. And that even with respect to the divine being, and the things of religion, and the great concerns of the immortal souls of men, the eyes of wicked men are opened when they go into another world. The greatness of the abilities of devils may be argued from the representation in Ephesians 6.12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, and so on. The same may also be argued from what the scripture says of Satan's subtlety. Genesis 3 verses 1, 2 Corinthians 11.3 and Acts 13.10. 
And as the devil has a faculty of understanding of large capacity, so he is capable of a great speculative knowledge of the things of God in the invisible and eternal world, as well as other things, and must needs actually have a great understanding of these things, as these have always been chiefly in his view, and as his circumstances from his first existence have been such as have tended chiefly to engage him to attend to those things. Before his fall, he was one of those angels who continually beheld the face of the Father in heaven. And sin has no tendency to destroy the memory, and therefore has no tendency to blot out of it any speculative knowledge that was formerly there. As the devil's subtlety shows his great capacity, so the way in which his subtlety is exercised and manifested, which is principally in his artful management with respect to things of religion, is exceeding subtle representations, insinuations, reasonings, and temptations concerning these things, demonstrates his great actual understanding of them, as in order to be a very artful disputant in any science, though it be only to confound and deceive such as are conversant in it, a person have need to have a great and extensive acquaintance with the things which pertain to that science. Thus, the devil has undoubtedly a great degree of speculative knowledge in divinity, having been, as it were, educated in the best divinity school in the universe, the heaven of heavens. He must needs have such an extensive and accurate knowledge concerning the nature and attributes of God as we worms of the dust in our present state are not capable of. And he must have a far more extensive knowledge of the works of God as of the work of creation in particular, for he was a spectator of the creation of this visible world. He was one of those morning stars, Job 38, 4-7, who sang together, and of those sons of God that shouted for joy when God laid the foundation of the earth and laid the measures thereof and stretched the line upon it. And so he must have a very great knowledge of God's works of providence. He has been a spectator of the series of these works from the beginning. He has seen how God has governed the world in all ages, and he has seen the whole train of God's wonderful successive dispensations of providence towards his church from generation to generation. And he has not been an indifferent spectator, but the great opposition between God and him and the whole course of those dispensations has necessarily engaged his attention in the strictest observation of them. He must have a great degree of knowledge concerning Jesus Christ as the Savior of men, and the nature and method of the work of redemption, and the wonderful wisdom of God in this contrivance. It is that work of God wherein, above all others, God has acted in opposition to him, and in which he has chiefly set himself in opposition to God. It is with relation to this affair that the mighty warfare has been maintained, which has been carried on between Michael and his angels, and the devil and his angels, through all ages from the beginning of the world, and especially since Christ appeared."
the devil has had enough to engage his attention to the steps of divine wisdom in this work, for it is to that wisdom he has opposed his subtlety, and he has seen and found to his great disappointment and unspeakable torment how divine wisdom, as exercised in that work, has baffled and confounded his devices. He has a great knowledge of the things of another world, for the things of that world are in his immediate view. He has a great knowledge of heaven, for he has been an inhabitant of that world of glory, and he has a great knowledge of hell and the nature of its misery. For he is the first inhabitant of hell, and above all the other inhabitants has experience of its torments, and has felt them constantly for more than fifty-seven hundred years." He must have a great knowledge of the Holy Scriptures, for it is evident he is not hindered from knowing what is written there by the use he made of the words of Scripture in his temptation of our Savior. And if he can know, he has much opportunity to know, and must needs have a disposition to know with the greatest exactness that he may to greater effect pervert and rest of the Scripture, and prevent such an effect of the Word of God on the hearts of men as shall tend to overthrow his kingdom. He must have a great knowledge of the nature of mankind, their capacity, their dispositions, and the corruptions of their hearts, for he has had long and great observation and experience. The heart of man is what he had chiefly to do with in his subtle devices, mighty efforts, restless and indefatigable operations, and exertions of himself from the beginnings of the world." and it is evident that he has a great speculative knowledge of the nature of experimental religion by his being able to imitate it so artfully and in such a manner as to transform himself into an angel of light. Therefore it is manifest from my text and doctrine that no degree of speculative knowledge of religion is any certain sign of true piety, whatever clear notions a man may have of the attributes of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, the nature of the two covenants, the economy of the Trinity, and the part which each person has in the affairs of man's redemption, if he can discourse never so excellently of the offices of Christ, and the way of salvation by him, and the admirable methods of divine wisdom, and the harmony of the various attributes of God in that way, if he can talk never so clearly and exactly of the method of the justification of a sinner, and of the nature of conversion, and the operations of the Spirit of God in applying the redemption of Christ, giving good distinctions, happily solving difficulties, and answering objections, in a manner tending greatly to enlighten the ignorant, to the edification of the church of God, and the conviction of gainsayers, and the great increase of light in the world, if he has more knowledge of this sort than hundreds of true saints of an ordinary education, and most divines, yet all is no certain evidence of any degree of saving grace in the heart." It is true, the scripture often speaks of knowledge of divine things, is what is peculiar to true saints, as in John 17, 3. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent.
Matthew 11:27. No man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Psalm 9:10. They that know thy name will put their trust in thee. Philippians 3.8 I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. But then we must understand it of a different kind of knowledge from that speculative understanding which the devil has to so great a degree. It will also be allowed that the spiritual saving knowledge of God and divine things greatly promotes speculative knowledge as it engages the mind in a search into things of this kind and much assists to a distinct understanding of them so that other things being equal, they who have spiritual knowledge are much more likely than others to have a good doctrinal acquaintance with things of religion. But yet such acquaintance may be no distinguishing characteristic of true saints. Section 3 It may also be inferred from what has been observed that for persons merely to yield a speculative assent to the doctrines of religion as true is no certain evidence of a state of grace. My text tells us that the devils believe, and as they believe that there is one God, so they believe the truth of the doctrines of religion in general. The devil is orthodox in his faith. He believes a true scheme of doctrine, but he is no deist, Sassinian, Arian, Pelagian, or Antinomian. The articles of his faith are all sound, and in them he is thoroughly established. Therefore, a person to believe the doctrines of Christianity merely from the force of arguments, as discerned only by speculation, is no evidence of grace. It is probably a very rare thing for unregenerate men to have a strong persuasion of the truth of the doctrines of religion, especially such of them as are very mysterious and much above the comprehension of reason. Yet if he be very confident of the truth of Christianity and its doctrines, and is able to argue most strongly for the proof of them, in this he goes nothing beyond the devil, who doubtless has a great knowledge of the rational arguments by which the truth of the Christian religion and its several principles are evinced. And therefore, when the scripture speaks of believing that Jesus is the Son of God as a sure evidence of grace, as in 1 John 5, 1 and other places, it must be understood not of a mere speculative assent, but of another kind and manner of believing, which is called the faith of God's elect. Titus 1, verse 1. There is a spiritual conviction of the truth, which is a believing with the whole heart peculiar to true saints, of which I shall speak more particularly. Section 4 It may be inferred from the doctrine which has been insisted on that it is no certain sign of persons being savingly converted that they have been subjects of very great distress and terrors of mind through apprehensions of God's wrath and fears of damnation that the devils are the subjects of great terrors through apprehensions of God's wrath and fears of its future effects is implied in my text, which speaks not only of their believing, but trembling. 
It must be no small degree of terror which should make those principalities and powers, those mighty, proud, and sturdy beings, to tremble. There are many terrors that some persons who are concerned for their salvation are the subjects of, which are not from any proper awakenings of conscience or apprehensions of truth, but from melancholy or frightful impressions on their imagination, or some groundless apprehensions and the delusions and false suggestions of Satan. But if they have had never so great and long-continued terrors from real awakenings and convictions of truth, and views of things as they are, this is no more than what is in the devils, and will be in all wicked men in another world. However stupid and senseless most ungodly men are now, all will be effectually awakened at last. There will be no such thing as slumbering in hell." There are many that cannot be awakened by the most solemn warnings and awful threatenings of the word of God, the most alarming discourses from the pulpit, and the most awakening and awful providences, but all will be thoroughly awakened by the sound of the last trumpet and the appearance of Christ to judgment. All sorts will then be filled with most amazing terrors from apprehensions of truth and seeing things as they are when the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men such as were the most lofty and stout-hearted most ready to treat the things of religion with contempt shall hide themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and say to the mountains and rocks Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Revelation six fifteen to 17 Therefore, if persons have been first awakened, and afterwards have had comfort and joy, it is no certain sign that their comforts are of the right hand, because they were preceded by very great terrors. Section 5. It may be further inferred from the doctrine that no work of the law on men's hearts in conviction of guilt and just desert of punishment is a sure argument that a person has been savingly converted. Not only are no awakenings and tears any certain evidence of this, but no mere legal work whatsoever, though carried to the utmost extent. Nothing wherein there is no grace or spiritual light, but only the mere conviction of natural conscience and those acts and operations of the mind which are the result of this, and so are, as it were, merely forced by the clear light of conscience, without the concurrence of the heart and inclination with that light, is any certain sign of the saving grace of God, or that a person was ever savingly converted." The evidence of this from my text and doctrine is demonstrative. Because the devils are the subjects of these things, and all wicked men that shall finally perish will be the subjects of the same. 
natural conscience is not extinguished in the damned in hell, but on the contrary remains there in its greatest strength, and is brought to its most perfect exercise, most fully to do its proper office as God's vicegerent in the soul, to condemn those rebels against the King of heaven and earth, and manifest God's just wrath and vengeance, and by that means to torment them, and be as a never-dying worm within them. Wretched men find means in this world to blind the eyes and stop the mouth of this vicegerent of a sin-revenging God, but they shall not be able to do it always. In another world, the eyes and mouth of conscience will be fully opened. God will hereafter make wicked men to see and know these things from which now they industriously hide their eyes. Isaiah 26, 10 and 11 Let favor be shown to the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly, and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Lord, when thy hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they shall see, and be ashamed for their envy of the people. Yea, the fire of thine enemies shall devour them. We have this expression often annexed to God's threatenings of wrath to his enemies. And they shall know that I am the Lord. This shall be accomplished by their woeful experience and clear light in their consciences, whereby they shall be made to know whether they will or not, how great and terrible, holy and righteous a God Jehovah is, whose authority they have despised. And they shall know that he is righteous and holy in their destruction." This all of the ungodly will be convinced of at the day of judgment by the bringing to light of all their wickedness of heart and practice and setting all their sins with all their aggravations in order, not only in the view of others, even of the whole world, but in the view of their own consciences. This is threatened, Psalm 50:21. These things thou hast done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself, but I will reprove thee, and set them in order before thine eyes. Compare this with the first four verses of the psalm. The design of the day of judgment is not to find out what is just, as it is with human judgments, but it is to manifest what is just to make known God's justice and the judgment which he will execute to men's own consciences and to the world. And therefore that day is called the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, Romans 2, 5. Now sinners often cavil against the justice of God's dispensations, and particularly the punishment which he threatens for their sins, excusing themselves and condemning him. But when God comes to manifest their wickedness in the light of that day, and they call them to an account, they will be speechless. Matthew twenty-two eleven and 12. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? 
And he was speechless. When the king of heaven and earth comes to judgment, their consciences will be so perfectly enlightened and convinced by the all-searching light they shall then stand in that their mouths will be effectually stopped as to all excuses for themselves, all pleading of their own righteousness to excuse or justify them, and all objections against the justice of their judge that their conscience will condemn them only and not God. Therefore it follows from the doctrine that it can be no certain sign of grace that persons have had great convictions of sin. Suppose they have had their sins of life with their aggravations remarkably set before them so as greatly to affect and terrify them, and withal have had a great sight of the wickedness of their hearts, the greatness of the sin of unbelief, and of the unexcusableness and heinousness of the most secret spiritual iniquities. Perhaps they have been convinced of the utter insufficiency of their own righteousness, and they despair of being recommended to God by it, have been convinced that they are wholly without excuse before God, and deserve damnation, and that God would be just in executing the threatened punishment upon them, though it be so dreadful. All these things will be in the ungodly at the day of judgment, when they shall stand with devils at the left hand, and shall be doomed as accursed to everlasting fire with them. Indeed, there will be no submission in them. Their conscience will be convinced that God is just in their condemnation. There will be no acquiescence of mind in that divine attribute, no yielding of the soul to God's sovereignty, but the highest degree of enmity and opposition, a true submission of the heart and will to the justice and sovereignty of God is therefore allowed to be something peculiar to true converts, being something which the devils and damned souls are and never will be far from, and to which a mere work of the law and convictions of conscience, however great and clear, will never bring men. When sinners are the subjects of great convictions of conscience and a remarkable work of the law, it is only transacting the business of the day of judgment in the conscience beforehand. God sits enthroned in the conscience, as at the last day he will sit enthroned in the clouds of heaven. The sinner is arraigned as it were at God's bar, and God appears in this awful greatness as a just and holy, sin-hating and sin-revenging God, as he will. Well, then, the sinner's iniquities are brought to light, his sins set in order before him, the hidden things of darkness and the counsels of the heart are made manifest as it will be then. Many witnesses do, as it were, rise up against the sinner under convictions of conscience as they will against the wicked at the day of judgment, and the books are opened. Particularly, the book of God's strict and holy law is opened in the conscience, and its rules applied for the condemnation of the sinner, which is a book that will be opened at the day of judgment as a grand rule to all such wicked men as have lived under it. 
and the sentence of the law is pronounced against the sinner, and the justice of the sentence made manifest as it will be at the day of judgment. The conviction of the sinner at the day of judgment will be a work of the law as well as the conviction of conscience in this world, and the work of the law, if the work be merely legal, is never carried further in the consciences of sinners now than it will be at that day, when its work will be perfect and thoroughly stopping the sinner's mouth. Romans 3.19 Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and that all the world may become guilty before God. Every mouth shall be stopped by the law, either now or hereafter, and all the world shall become sensibly guilty before God, guilty of death, deserving of damnation, and therefore sinners have been the subjects of a great work of the law, and have thus become guilty, and their mouths have been stopped. It is no certain sign that ever they have been converted." Indeed, the lack of a thorough sense of guilt and desert of punishment and conviction of the justice of God and threatening damnation is a sign that a person never was converted and truly brought with the whole soul to embrace Christ as a Savior from this punishment, for it is easily demonstrable that there is no such thing as entirely and cordially accepting an offer of a Savior from a punishment which we think we do not deserve. But having such a conviction is no certain sign that persons have true faith or have ever truly received Christ as their Savior. And if persons have great comfort, joy, and confidence suddenly led into their minds after great convictions, it is no infallible evidence that their comforts are built on a good foundation. It is manifest, therefore, that too much stress has been laid by many persons on a great work of the law preceding their comforts, who seem not only to have looked on such a work of the law as necessary to precede faith, but also to have esteemed it as the chief evidence of the truth and genuineness of succeeding faith and comforts. By this means it is to be feared very many have been deceived and established in a false hope. And what is to be seen in the event of things in multitude of instances confirms this. It may be safely allowed that it is not so usual for great convictions of conscience to prove abortive and fail of a good issue as for lesser convictions, and that more generally when the Spirit of God proceeds so far with sinners in the work of the law as to give them a great sight of their hearts and of the heinousness of their spiritual iniquities, and to convince them that they are without excuse and that all their righteousness can do nothing to merit God's favor, but they lie justly exposed to God's eternal vengeance with mercy, a work of saving conversion follows. But we can have no warrant to say it is universally so, or to lay it down as an infallible rule, that when convictions of conscience have gone thus far, saving faith and repentance will surely follow. 
If any should think that they have grounds for such a determination because they cannot see what end God should have in carrying a work of conviction to such a length, and so preparing the heart for faith, and after all never given saving faith to the soul, I desire it may be considered where will be the end of our doubts and difficulties if we think ourselves sufficient to determine so positively and particularly concerning God's ends and designs and what he does. It may be asked such an objector what is God's end in giving a sinner any degree of the strivings of the spirit and conviction of conscience when he afterwards suffers it to come to nothing. If he may give some degree that may finally be in vain, who shall set the bounds and say how great the degree shall be? Who can on such grounds determine that when a sinner has so much of that conviction which the devils and damned in hell have, true faith and eternal salvation will be the certain consequence? This we may certainly determine, that if the apostle's argument in the text be good, not anything whatsoever that the devils have is certainly connected with such a consequence. Seeing sinners, while such, are capable of the most perfect convictions, and will have them at the day of judgment and in hell, who shall say that God never shall cause reprobates to anticipate the future judgment and damnation in that respect? This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, 
they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.